Please take a seat. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken to us uh, through your Son and uh, in uh, the words of Scripture that his Spirit has inspired. And we thank you that this morning we can come to your Word and learn more of your truth. And we pray now that as we come to these verses of Ecclesiastes 8, that you would help me as I speak on these verses and help us all to receive these words with a believing and obedient heart, that we might live wisely and bring glory to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I could invite you to turn in your to we read uh, a bit earlier on in our service, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 8. And as we come to this chapter, we uh, see, don't we, it's a chapter once again that is all about this, this theme of wisdom. Wisdom, if you like, is this sanctified skill of living God's way in the world that God has made and over which God rules. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 7, you remember that chapter was all about wisdom as well. Uh, we saw that the teacher is telling us there in chapter 7 that we should learn wisdom, firstly by simply facing up to the reality of death. And then having learned wisdom, we should then live it out. We should apply it to every area of our lives. But even so, that chapter ended by showing us some of the limitations of wisdom. And so by being wise, we cannot fix a fallen world. Rather, wisdom shows us how to live in a fallen world. That's the limitation of wisdom. It can't fix the world. It does show you how to live in the world, however. And once again, here in chapter 8, the teacher wants to encourage us towards a life of wisdom. And he begins with this lovely poetic verse in which he praises the value and the benefits of wisdom. He says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. And he's saying getting wisdom, getting wisdom has such an impact upon a person that really you can, you can actually see the difference that wisdom can make to a person just by looking at their face. Uh, I don't know, but maybe you can think of people you know and you have seen this transformation take place pretty much before your eyes. You knew them before they were a Christian, perhaps. And though you would never have actually said this to them, uh, they had a hard face when they were not a Christian. The way they lived their life, they just looked angry all the time. They just looked disappointed. Uh, they looked downhearted. They, they scowled all the time. Their brow was constantly furrowed. And then they, they came to know Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. 
And by coming to Christ, they learn the wisdom of Christ. And now their face just looks different somehow. You've seen this, haven't you? They, they smile more now. And it's not the case that they're always grinning from ear to ear, of course. But even in the midst of adversity, there is this peacefulness to their countenance. They're at peace because they know that they're reconciled to God through Jesus. And they know that whatever they go through in this life, their God is sovereign. And everything that comes into their life, both the happy things and the sad things, it all comes to them by God's fatherly hand. And in all of these things, he is working always for their good. And so this person just looks different now. They're, they're at peace. They're, they're more joyful than they ever were before they were a Christian. That's the impact that wisdom has upon a person, the wisdom of Christ when they come to know him. The teacher says a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. And it makes you want more and more wisdom, doesn't it, when you listen to that verse. It makes you want to know Jesus more. It makes you want to become more like him. It wants you to be changed, transformed more into the likeness of Christ and to become like him because in him are found all these treasures of wisdom. Wisdom makes a person's face shine. And in the rest of the chapter, the, the teacher is going to walk us through Three brief meditations, all on the topic of living wisely in this world, in, in three different areas of life. He's showing us here practically just a, a few ways of what it will look like to live in wisdom, what it looks like in practice in this life. So here's the, the first one. He says, obey the king even if you don't like him. Obey the king, even if you don't like him. And so the, the teacher's first little object lesson in this chapter has to do with the, uh, the theme of government and, and politics and rule. What does God's wisdom have to say about how the believer should relate to those who are in positions of authority over them in society? Now, of course, the, the teacher lived in a monarchy, and so he speaks in terms of a king. But, of course, this applies, doesn't it, in every culture, whatever the, the governmental system might be, whatever the, the structures and hierarchies in society may be. What does it look like for us to live uh, in a Christian way before those who are in authority over us in society? And what does it look like for Christians in other parts of the world, in other countries, to relate rightly to, to their president or their king or queen or even the dictator who is ruling over them? It is a, a very relevant and practical question, isn't it? What does wisdom look like when it comes to our obedience in these things? How are we to relate to those in authority over us if we want to live wisely? as God's people. Well, the teacher gives us just a, a very simple command, doesn't he? In verse 2, he says, I say, keep the king's command. 
There it is in a nutshell. Very simply, obey those in positions of authority over you. Now, he doesn't mean that you necessarily have to like them. And he doesn't mean that you necessarily have to agree with all of their policies. He doesn't mean that you should necessarily vote for them next time around. And of course, he doesn't mean that if those who are in authority are trying to pass laws that go against God's law and go against our conscience as Christians, that we have to obey those kinds of laws. Of, of course not. And that's very relevant for us today, isn't it? But with all of those caveats in place, the simple command of God's wisdom remains. Obey those in authority over you in society. And then having given that basic command, the, the teacher gives us a few reasons why that is the case. Uh, the first reason he offers us is the most important. And that is because civil authority is instituted by God. He writes, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So whoever that king or that leader or that ruler is, says the teacher, God has put him in place. God has given his oath to that, that ruler, that king. And it doesn't just apply to the, the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. It doesn't just apply to Christian rulers. It doesn't just apply to good rulers in general. No, it applies to every civil authority, including those that exist in the world today. In the New Testament, Paul makes that very clear to us, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 13, he, he writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And it's important we remember that when Paul wrote those words, uh, the Roman Empire was growing in, in hostility against the church. Persecution was on the rise. It was about to get very serious. And yet Paul could write to the, the Christians in Rome, be subject to those civil authorities. Obey them. For the simple reason that God himself has instituted them. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. Because rebellion is foolish. Rebellion is foolish. That's what verses 3 and 4 are getting at. Look at those verses again. He says, Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? So the teacher has in mind here the, the official in the court of the, the king. A particular official who doesn't like the king whom he serves. And he disagrees with many of this king's policies. He's fed up with his reign. And... He decides then he's going to do something about it. He's going to lead a rebellion. He's going to try and overthrow this king. And so hastily he goes out from the presence of the king. That is, he storms out of the royal court. And then he takes his stand in an evil cause, the, the cause of this wicked rebellion to, to try and overthrow the king. The teacher says this is foolish. He writes, 
The king does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? The teacher is showing us rebellions don't tend to end well. And therefore far better to obey that king that God has put in place. Even if you don't like him. Rather than to try and stir up a rebellion. Again, Romans 13 is helpful to us here. Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And then the, the third reason we're offered is this. Obey the king because it will go well with you. And that's where verse 5 is pointing us. Whoever keeps a command, that is a command of this king, will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And of course it doesn't mean that life will be perfect if we are good citizens. In fact verses 6 and following go on to show us that, that even when we live wisely in relation to civil authorities, life can still be very troublesome. Again, we come back to that point we noted earlier on, that wisdom doesn't fix a broken world. Wisdom shows us how to live in a broken world. And yet, be that as it may, generally speaking, for those who obey civil authorities, things will go well with them. And once again, this teaching is reflected in Romans 13. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. This is what wisdom looks like, says the teacher. This is what wisdom looks like in the realm of relating to those who are in authority within society. The posture should be one of obedience to them. Even if, as we've seen, we don't like those who are in positions of authority. The teacher says obey him. Because that authority has been instituted by God. Trying to lead a rebellion is foolish. And it will go well with you if you obey. Of course, the teacher is writing in very different circumstances to those in which we live today. But the principles remain, don't they? Just as Paul unfolds them there in Romans 13. Be subject as Christians to those in positions of authority. Because the civil authorities that exist have been instituted by God himself. Then we come to the the second little meditation on living wisely. And we can sum it up like this. Fear God even when it seems pointless. Fear God even when it seems pointless. And so in the next section, the teacher takes us from the royal court to a very different location, to the graveyard. And you see in these next few verses, he's reflecting on some of the funerals that he's been to. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly whose funerals he's thinking about. But he does tell us what these people were like when they were alive. And they were not very nice people, he tells us. He simply says, then I saw the wicked buried. So he's thinking of certain wicked people that he's come across in the course of his life. And these people are now dead. They've died and they've been buried. And as we're often prone to do at funerals, he looks back on the lives that these people had lived. He reflects on how these people had conducted themselves throughout life. 
And he doesn't have very much good to say about some of these people. He's very honest, isn't he, in the, the eulogy, if you like, that he, that he gives. He, he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. He, he tells it like it is, what these people really were like when they lived their lives. He, he says, first of all, they were hypocrites. He says they used to go in and out of the holy place. So he's saying they were regular faces at, at public worship. Uh, they gave the outward impression of being very pious, very religious people. Even whilst on the inside, their hearts were wicked. They were hypocrites, he says. But secondly, they were also popular. Notice that. They were praised in the city where they had done these evil deeds. Now maybe it was the case that people were taken in by the hypocrisy of these people. Or maybe it's the case that they were praised for their wickedness. That they were applauded by other wicked people for their wickedness. Either way, he's saying they lived their lives in popularity. They were wicked hypocrites, but they were popular. And then thirdly, they were opportunistic. So verse 11 tells us, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You get what that verse is saying, don't you? The teacher is telling us we live in a world where justice doesn't come immediately, at least not often anyway. Very often people get away with things in this life. They do something wicked or evil and, and they're never called to account for it. And because life is like that here in this fallen world, wicked people see this as an opportunity to throw themselves into that wickedness. Take your chances. Go ahead and, and do that evil thing. And with a bit of luck, you'll get away with it. You'll never have to face justice, at least not for a long time. You see, these people were, were opportunistic. They were sinning faster than justice could keep up with them in this fallen world. And fourthly, they were privileged. So verse 12 talks, doesn't it, about the sinner who does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. This serial offender who always seems to get away with it somehow. And they enjoy life to a ripe old age. They, they seem to have this charmed existence. Uh, they never get called to account. Uh, they never seem to get sick. Bad things just don't seem to happen to them, even though they're living such an evil life. And in a world that is like that, it can seem utterly pointless at times to live God's way, can't it, if we're honest? Because we look at these things happening around us and we see that it's a world where so often evil people prosper. And it reminds us of the words of Asaph in Psalm 73, which we sang at the start of our service, doesn't it? Listen to some of those words from that psalm. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. It's true, isn't it? We, we live in a world where very often evil people enjoy a great life. They're rich and famous and good things seem to happen to them. And the teacher wants us to bring the wisdom of God 
to this situation, this, this context in which we live. And he says, fear God even when it seems pointless, even when to all appearances of how life goes here on earth. When it seems pointless to fear God, nonetheless keep fearing God, keep adoring him and revering him and obeying him. And so he says in verses 12 and 13, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Now at first it sounds like he's contradicting himself doesn't it? Did you notice that? In verse 12, he talks about the sinner prolonging his life. And then in verse 13, he says that the sinner will not prolong his life. So what does he mean there? And you see in verse 13, he's speaking about things in light of eternity now. Yes, in this life, the person who does not fear God, the person who is perhaps a hypocrite and who takes every opportunity to commit evil, yes, they may well be praised here. They may have long life here. They may be popular. They may get away with it for a while. They may live to a grand old age. And yet in the light of eternity, the teacher says it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days because he does not fear before God. And the teacher is assuring us that justice, which seems so slow at times here in this life, justice catches up with people eventually. It catches up with them in eternity, ultimately, when every sin ever committed will be judged perfectly. When Christ returns and he will judge the world in righteousness, every sin committed will find its just reward under the judgment of God. And therefore, says the teacher, fear God, even when, to all appearances, it seems pointless. Even when you look around at life in this world and it seems that evil people prosper, evil people get away with it. Wisdom tells you that in the end, justice will be done. And so fear God now. Live in humble reverence before him, trusting him, obeying him. The teacher says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And that's the conclusion that Asaph came to as well, isn't it, in Psalm 73. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Fear God, even when it seems pointless. And then we come to the third and the, the final little meditation there at the end of the chapter, verses 14 to 17. And the teacher says to us here, enjoy life even though you don't understand it. Enjoy life even though you don't understand it. And the same train of thought carries on um, here. He says there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. 
He's continuing with that second point that we've already seen. He's saying, we live, don't we, in a world where very often good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to godly people. You, you look around you at the world we live in. You see wicked people prospering. You see them enjoying the things which you wish that good people had to enjoy. The things that you feel that good people should enjoy in this life. And conversely, you then look at some of the, the godliest people you know and you see that they're going through difficult trials in life. And life is difficult for them. And for no apparent reason, these difficult circumstances have come about for them in life. And we just can't make head or tail of it, can we? The, the teacher cries out in verse 14, I said that this also is vanity. It's, I can't get a hold of it. It's, it's outside of my grasp. And then down in verses 16 and 17, he admits that no matter how much he tries and no matter how wise he may become, he will never understand why life is like that. He just cannot find it out. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, see sleep, then I saw that all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You see, three times in verse 17, he says, we cannot find out why life is like this. And as we were thinking about with the children earlier on, there are secret things that belong to God, things that he just hasn't revealed to us. All the intricacies of his providences that we go through in life. Those secret things belong to the Lord our God. And the teacher says, I, I cannot find it out. And neither can we. Even with all the wisdom that we could ever gain in this life. We just don't have the answers to why some things happen. Why did that tragedy hit that family? Why did this circumstance happen? Why did these things come about? Why, God, have you ordained that, that life here on earth is like that? The teacher says, we, we just don't know. God's ways are above our ways. We can't find it out. The, wise, the wisest person in the world can't figure out God's providence. His ways are inscrutable. And yet the teacher's response to all of this is very surprising, isn't it? Because he could become cynical. He could become depressed when he, when he sees that he can't figure out life. When he sees that he, he can't seem to squeeze the providence of God into human logic. And he could get very downhearted about that because it's all so elusive. It's all so incomprehensible. And yet rather his response is to say... Enjoy life, even though you don't understand it. And that's what verse 15 is pointing us towards, isn't it? He says, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And you see, the teacher wants us to realize that it is utterly pointless to spend your days 
trying to get your head around things that God just hasn't revealed to us, all the details of his providence, which he's kept beyond the grasp of human insight. And so why waste your energy trying to figure out what can never be understood by us? And instead, it is far better simply to enjoy whatever gifts God gives to you, whatever comes to you in life, as and when they do. This is the way of wisdom, and it is wonderfully freeing to accept that God is in control of whatsoever comes to pass, even though we cannot understand it. And if in God's providence he sends good things our way, then as the teacher is telling us repeatedly through this book, receive them and enjoy them with thanksgiving as gifts from him. Enjoy friends and family. Enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Enjoy music. Enjoy your holidays this summer. You don't know exactly why God has brought all these things into your life and what he's doing in your life and why there's ups and downs along the way. The teacher says, just enjoy what God has given to you. They're gifts from him. Enjoy them as such. Wisdom says, enjoy life, even though you don't understand it. And that brings us back full circle, doesn't it, to where the chapter started. That when we live by wisdom, it makes a person's face shine. Brings us joy and gladness when we live God's way in God's world. Let's pray that we'd be able to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And we've been reminded this morning of what a blessing it is to have received your wisdom in Christ and then to live our lives by it. And to that end, help us to apply these lessons that are set before us in this chapter. Help us to be good citizens, obeying those in authority over us, recognizing that all civil authorities are instituted by you. Help us to fear you, living before you in humble reverence and adoration even though so often in this world we see the evil prosper. Help us to live our lives in the light of eternity and to know that in the long run it will only be well with those who fear you. And for as long as we live, help us to enjoy life, even though we don't understand everything that happens. We cannot comprehend every aspect of your providence. Why sometimes good things happen to evil people and why sometimes bad things happen to godly people. These things are beyond our understanding. They are secret things that belong to you alone. And help us therefore simply to enjoy whatever blessings you give to us because you're the God who gives us all things for our enjoyment. And so Father, we pray you'd help us to live by this wisdom that our faces may shine with joy in you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.